Are you ready? Let's go. Ready. Ready. Yeah, ready when you are. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. Holden Shepherd, Heidi Anderson, Jan Latter, Alison Patterson, welcome to my little show. Why do you call it a little chat show? Jan Nichols, Sam Eichen, Annabelle Smith, Donna Mazza, Rebecca Watson, John L. Fraser, Tracy Jacobson, Adam Wallace, Monique Mulligan, Matt Glover, Karen Young. I don't even know where I'm going with this. Welcome to my show. Well, there's a storm raging outside at the moment while I record this. There's storms all last night and I had hardly any sleep, but I woke up and I came alive because I got to chat with fabulous kids author, Kitty Black. And we talked about some of the most important things that I believe that all kids and all parents need to know, and that's about feelings and about getting kids to understand their feelings and the importance of why they need to understand and talk about what's going on inside them. Now, Kitty's got a couple of books coming out later in August. We talk about them and we talk about how parents can help their kids open up and, and talk about feelings and how they can model behavior. So this is a very, very, very informative episode of Josh Langley Gets to Know. Plus, we have a good laugh or two and we talk about the fact that Kitty is one of the rare people to actually make the leap and become a full-time writer. Now, that's pretty exciting. So, as you would normally do, pour a cup of coffee, glass of wine, whatever, while you're taking the dolphin for a walk or talking to the goldfish, whatever it is, let's get to know Kitty Black. Kitty Black, thank you so much for coming on my show. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Despite there might be some wild weather happening and some rattling noises. Yeah, it's, it was pretty windy overnight. And I think you, you're, you said you were tired when we were chatting just before because you didn't get much sleep and, and I'm, I'm the same. So we'll just see how we go. If we both nod off during this, we just know we need to up our game. Either be like, you know, hyper or like snoozy and either way, that's fine. <laughs> either way, we can see how we go. Now, look, um, I was actually reading an article this morning that my publisher had sent to me and it was called, what was it called? The Counterintuitive Secret to Raising Kind Kids. And the whole article was about that to raise kind kids, you actually have to get them to understand their own feelings and emotions first, because when you, yeah. they understand their emotions and feelings, they can then see it in other people. Now, yeah. the, the author of, of this article was saying that's counterintuitive, it's radical, and for me, it's not. It's just logical. <laughs> what, what are your yeah. thoughts on that? I think it always has to be personal first because, you know, kids they grow up and they're the center of their own world and that's kind of how they're meant to be for a while you start off understanding yourself and then your world gets bigger and bigger and kind of trying to force them into a prescribed behavior that's always going to backfire you can't like you know teach kindness you can understand it and then build on it mm. so mm. I think you know there's a difference between the feeling and the behavior yeah, I suppose it's because in the articles they were saying that, you know, most often parents would try and lecture their child yep. about how to be kind to someone. You know? 
like it's not going to connect. But if but if you can teach the child to understand their own feelings about you know whether it's feelings of jealousy or feelings of whatever it is or anger or anxiety, and they go, so this is what it feels like. Then that person must be going through the exact same thing that I am. I mean, I talk about it with my with all my school talks and stuff, and and tell kids to try and empathize because they've got the same feelings that they have. Do you yeah. think? Because I'm, we're going to talk about your books coming out very shortly, but how important do you think that is for kids to understand their feelings? Ah, oh, it's crucial. This like feelings and emotions are the basis for how we react to other people. It's how we build relationships. It's emotions inform our own decisions as well. So we make decisions based on our feelings. If we don't understand our feelings, then we can't always follow our own logic or really understand why we do the things we do. And that's such a lost feeling as well. Like Mm. to be like, oh, why did I do that? And I think the going back to what you said about the article, when kids understand their own feelings and then they can relate to others. So having that step of understanding and accepting your own emotions first, that allows you to build relationships with others and understand yourself more. Now, you've just come out of being in the education system as a counsellor and wellbeing coordinator at a primary school. What do you, what's the prevalence of, of, let's talk about schools first, schools teaching and talking about understanding emotions and you know, emotional intelligence, the zones of regulation, all that sort of stuff. Is it big in schools at the moment? I think it is. So I worked in mainly, um, you know, slightly alternative schools or independent schools. Mm. But I do know that mainstream schools usually have a strong focus and a strong program as well. So I think it's particularly in primary schools, I think it's starting to become more and more mainstream to have a program of social and emotional acceptance. Mm. The trick then is kind of building that into the context of the classroom and into you know, the way that teachers respond to students so that it doesn't just become lip service. Yeah, okay. Or, or it doesn't remain an abstract concept for the kid. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, the thing that was really tricky for me as um, a counsellor wellbeing coordinator was when kids just gave the right answers. So they mm. would just be like, oh, I know I did the wrong thing. This is why. This is what I'll do next time. Yep. There's not a lot you can do with that. Like you kind of need to find a way in to get to the real feelings there Mm. and, you know, what they're actually trying to achieve because they always have a goal and they always know why they did it. But, yeah. 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 What do you think parents can do to help kids get in touch or understand their feelings a bit more? I think modelling is one of the most important things you can do and Mm. don't regard your own feelings like you're a person it's okay to have feelings and respond to those and to name frustration and name tiredness and kind of negative emotions like that and then kids can see how you deal with them appropriately do you think i mean how how we're talking you know parents from, you know, from the ages of 20 to 55 or whatever, how aware are they of their own emotions? I mean, because we weren't taught this at school. We yeah, weren't taught yeah. this by our parents. So so where, where, where do parents learn that? 
That can be really tricky. I think, you know, there's an element of seeking it out yourself Mm. that has to be part of it too. I mean, Mm. this was always kind of an interest of mine, not because I was great at it, but because I wasn't. Because it was kind of like, oh, why did I do that? And that's not what I thought that I would do. And, you know, how do people react to things? And so there is an element of looking for it yourself, but you can always just start with really simple things like giving yourself 10 seconds just to feel the feeling. Yeah. Being comfortable with discomfort is a great place to start. And that's what most people want to avoid. And and once yeah. I suppose oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm exactly the same. It's like I'm feeling angry. Yeah, no, better. I'm, I'm, I like being uncomfortable. I don't like being angry or anxious. It's like, you know, just get this the way. How can we distract ourselves? <laughs> yeah, but as you're saying, if you just spend 10 seconds with it, it doesn't mm. seem so big and so bad. And yeah. I think the idea of, of wanting to avoid it is actually bigger than experiencing it itself. And I think that's what, what you're saying is if you just allow yourself to experience it, it's like, oh, yeah, that's not that yeah it's not so terrible because yeah mm. quite often we think of being being anxious or angry or jealous or lonely or upset as these really horrible feelings that we don't want our kids to experience and we don't want to experience ourselves but if you just sit with it to use a catchphrase then it's not so bad and feelings feelings always move on there's like an endless cycle, like it could mm. be back and it will be, but it will also leave. Do you think, do you think that adults or parents have a fear of if they do that, then they appear to be vulnerable and their kids see them being vulnerable and they're not the strong stoic parent that they're meant to be or that they're meant to know everything? Is there a fear of that that comes in? Potentially. I think you can do both. I think um, like parents like of my context and, mm. you know, tends to be more that we don't want to damage our children. <laughs> so there's this very That's like you of everything that you do. So you're like, oh, no, if they see me freaking out, then, you know, that's an anxiety disorder that I've created right there. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if they see you dealing with it and they see you accepting it and then making good choices around it, then that's something that they learn to do themselves. And they learn that like, you know, we don't just get rid of anxiety or get rid of anger or even fear or anything like that. The goal isn't just to get rid of them as fast as we can. Mm. It's to take the information and learn from it. Because as well. Sorry? emotions are informative as well oh yeah exactly they tell you what's going on and um i think you if you shift the focus and look at as the emotions as a positive to guide you through what you're going Mm. through you can better navigate it and do you think that because parents or adults are not in touch with their emotions when their kids are showing big emotions they can't deal with it they can't yeah. cope with it because yeah. the idea is, I mean, I, I, I try and, you know, try and tell, you know, say one of the best things you can do is, is sit with, as you said, sit with your mm-hmm. child while they're going through So the child knows they're safe, they're okay, mm-hmm. whatever they're feeling is good, they're safe, and that it'll pass and that, yeah. would, that would go through. But a lot of parents go, I can't deal with this. I will need to fix it. 
yeah. and they want to jump in and fix yeah. it. And what, mm -hmm. what, what, do you, what do you say to that? I think it's a really difficult thing and it's something that I struggle with as well. Mm. So, because it is, again, that kind of concept of modelling and teaching and it can be really hard to watch your child be distressed or watch them be sad or, you know, be calm even when they're chucking a massive tantrum and having all of these big feelings and, you know, kind of standing there being, you know, like, oh, you're so upset isn't like you can talk about, you can separate behaviour and feelings as well. Mm. And you don't, like, if you're drowning in the emotion, take a break. Like your job isn't to jump in there with them. So if they're overwhelmed by a feeling, you absolutely don't have to go in there and rescue them and let yourself be completely overwhelmed as well. Like you can say, I can see that you're really upset. I'm going to go breathe for 10 seconds. I'll be back in, you know, I'll be back in a minute. Mm. I'm just going to go get a glass of water. You're safe. I'll be back. So That's, you can I, I like that. Time for yourself you can let your kid know what's going on and it's still like you're not like oh be quiet I can't handle this mm. but you're still caring for yourself ah I like that a little so that little moment that pause a bit of self-care so therefore mm. the you as the parent can then deal with that yeah. that situation yeah. and this beautifully segues into other resources that parents can have are books and you have got a series coming out in late August. So this is the first two books in the series. Now, the series is called Follow Your Feelings. So what are the first two books called? Have you got them there? So first two books, and I just happen to have them here. So it's Follow Your Feelings, and it's Lucy and Sad. Yeah. And this is Sad. He's a big blue bear, and I love him so much. I think he's adorable. And, like, Sadness is obviously a big blue bear. I don't know why. We all don't already know that. I'm sure on some level we do. Yeah. And yeah. then there's um, Max and Worry. And Worry is this little stressed out meerkat. Ah, oh, oh, okay. Right. So so what happens with the with the storylines in these books? Just pick pick one. What about the Worry one? Okay. Oh, Max and Worry? Okay. Yeah. So but obviously this is talking about anxiety in, in this. Or is yes. it a little bit less than the... Um, it's kind of a cross between anxiety and worry and panic. So is that oh, is sorry. that is that your house falling in or something? Not quite, not yet. <laughs> we'll see how it goes the rest of the day. So Max and worry is um, when Max has a hard time starting his maths work. He's joined by someone new, worry, but worry doesn't give Max the help he needs. So it's about how, again, when we're kind of confronted with a negative, negative emotion, we just want it to go away. And what worry wants in the book is for Max just to get out of the room, basically. So, you know, Max is looking at his maths and maths is the most common school anxiety and worry and concern. So mm -hmm. that's... I can understand that. I, I hated maths. So I got so worried. About everyone. Maths. <laughs> I still worry about math. People like, <gasps> so, you know, worries they're going, that looks hard. And like, what if you get something wrong? 
So all those thoughts that kids tell themselves and that we tell ourselves, they're catastrophizing. Mm. And then you've got some physical symptoms going on. And like, it's a bit funny. There's some funny bits as you know, is that a seven or a chicken? Check some humor in. And so Worry's just trying to get Max away from his maths and eventually Max runs out of the room mm. and then situation is worse. So he's in trouble, but he has some excellent grown-ups, and they talk to him. Well, they accept his feelings, really. So, mm-hmm. you know, ladies, grown-ups held him tight. All that matters is you do your best, they said. So, again, there's that kind of relationship being modelled and then Max can't sleep and he's still kind of ruminating on things and then he starts to talk to his worry and kind of start to argue with it and disagree with it. So he challenges, then, he challenges the, the worry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing as well is that we can talk to our emotions, like part of accepting them, like it's accepting that they're present but not accepting everything that they tell us because mm. it may not be true. Mm. Usually it's and, not. Um, if it's a, Usually it's not true. It's all, it's all made up. Yeah, it's again, mm. it's like catastrophizing. It's the worst possible situation. And then the next morning, you know, Max still feels anxious. So he still has physical symptoms of anxiety. His stomach is still churning like a washing machine. But he decides that it's okay to make mistakes and ask for help. So it's not about he's suddenly brilliant at maths. It's, you know, that even when we feel uncomfortable, we can do hard things. Yeah, I, I love I love that. What a great great way of telling the story. Yeah, so one of the best ways that I feel is, is for parents to read the books to kids. Mm. Would you recommend that with with? Yeah, absolutely. Because like even without going too deeply into it, it's a story. It's a narrative. Mm. So mm-hmm. that can be an easy way in. And you know, kids might tell you themselves, "Oh, that's what I do," mm. or. I have a worry and, you know, my worry might be a camel or something. I don't know. Well, so you think it's like- also a good opportunity for parents, as you were saying earlier on in the interview, to talk about their own vulnerabilities, to talk about when they had some worry about something yeah. or what they did. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I know that for my kids, you know, if I lecture them, it doesn't work. Mm. But. If I'm like, you know, when I was a kid, I was in this situation and it's, you know, surprisingly similar to their situation and it doesn't necessarily have to be entirely accurate because I'm sure that most situations that kids are going through, like we've all been through. Mm. So kind of just offer an easy way in and kind of model that acceptance as well. So kind of like, you know, I used to get really anxious about certain things or, you know, I had a bad thing happen at school and then I didn't want to go anymore and I was really worried about it. And then they start to open up. Yeah. Okay. And it's that opening up and it's that creating that safe space that you as the parent do to talk openly about. And that's where I find the wonderful thing books can do, especially reading Mm. books with kids and and it leads to that questioning. It leads to the parent having their own their own vulnerable moment, or or mm. a child going, "Okay, this is the time I need to talk about this," or whatever that's been been bugging them, or something like that. And that's the power of of, of books like that. 
and knowing that parents are people as well because that's something that we also want to teach our yeah. children is you know particularly as they grow older it's that you know we're people and we have our own dreams and needs and all of those things we're not available 24 hours a day and the goal is to raise competent independent happy adults as well mm, mm. and books like yours help that now um, now kitty your whole family has yourself <laughs> your children and your your partner husband has been diagnosed with adhd can you tell me because i know there's a lot of misconceptions out there in the community about adhd can you tell me what it looks like firstly and what some of the misconceptions are so generally in school it's labeled as um laziness Mm. or you know you're just not reaching your full potential or you're not concentrating so it's like you know the kid that talks too much the kid that daydreams the kid that makes silly mistakes me the kid (laughs) that you know can't follow instructions so they might do the first part and then like wander off and quite often it's <laughs> this sounds like I should be diagnosing myself here. <laughs> anyway. It was an element of like being in my daughter's um assessment and like my husband and I were just looking at each other like <laughs> so um and like the the concept the what people can think, the misconception is mm. that it's done on purpose, that this kid is in full control of their actions and behaviours and emotions and that it's a choice to not concentrate or that they have the availability for more concentration and more focus and they can do these things like 100% of the time when mm. the reality is that depending on to use like psych words depending on like dopamine availability and yeah. executive function and all of those types of things they may not have that capacity at that point in time and like just because they can do a task in one context doesn't mean that if they don't do it in another it's a willful choice and they're just mm. you know being lazy because that whole school system is set up to, to sit there be quiet listen to mm. the teacher for yeah. what, six hours a day for 17, you know, for how many years? For lots of years. And All it's like, and I, I, I hear, I, firstly, I don't think human beings are designed to, to really learn that way, but it really does highlight if someone does have ADHD because you just can't do that. You just can't take it all in like that. It's not the way mm-hmm. to learn, is it? Yeah. And that's the thing, it can be really damaging. And that was why I was really glad because my daughter was diagnosed when she was six. And I wish I had been diagnosed that early because the self-loathing and the awareness that goes into knowing that, you know, you can do some things in this context, but you can't in others. So you question yourself. You're like, oh, God, am I lazy? Mm. Am I just a person that makes so many mistakes? And you believe other people when they say, if you can do this, that means you can do all of these things. And when and you can't, you feel bad. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So mm. I love the fact that my kids know how their brain works and we can provide accommodations and have high expectations and not just 
have them kind of have the baseline be functionality, but like mm. have it be like flourishing. Like how can we help you to flourish? We don't just want them to be okay. We want them to be the best that they can be. So the importance of a diagnosis then is crucial, isn't it? Because that allows that process to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And self-diagnosis is valid as well. Mm. Like the full diagnosis route. But yeah, I think um, just acknowledging neurodiversity and neurodivergent brains and neurotypical brains and I think the current stats, and they're always kind of changing a little bit, but the current stats in Australia are 6% of kids will be diagnosed with ADHD. Mm. And the kind of interesting thing there is that it is like a lifelong neurological difference, but only 0.5% of adults are diagnosed. Yeah, so, I heard I heard there's a lot of undiagnosed adults out there. And I, yeah, I and I'm sure there's a lot one. of adults too. <laughs> <laughs> if you have a lot of friends who have like, you know, who are autistic or have ADHD or kind of other neurodivergent conditions, then we, all, we tend to travel together in packs because we make sense to each other. Yeah, uh, and that's maybe because the, the books that I write are just loved by kids with autism yeah. or ADHD because they're simple, they're easy to read, there's no storyline, there's nothing to comprehend, it's just like... You know, it's just simple to digest. Funny. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say, um, it, it, I was back to the importance of a diagnosis. A lot of people out there in the community go, oh, well, you just drug them up with Ritalin and all that sort of stuff. Is that still a thing or what, what, what's, what's the story with that? People are still really concerned about that. And I understand that because it can be really, it's really tricky to decide whether or not to use medication or not use medication. So there are definitely other ways you can go about it. And again, kind of getting the diagnosis or self-diagnosing and informing yourself about how your brain works is crucial because there's, um, there's like exercise. So getting dopamine into your system is really important because if you have ADHD, then you have a dopamine seeking brain. It's always looking for a way to kind of wake itself up. It's looking for something new. It's looking for something interesting. Mm. It's kind of why we tend to be good in a crisis when everyone else is panicking because we get a big hit of dopamine and suddenly we can think really clearly. Um, so sugar could actually be really helpful if you've oh. got a long, I know. And again, it's counterintuitive and it goes against Everything if you've got diabetes, no. <laughs> no, ignore that. There's, you know, there's context. Yes, yes. So, so, so sugar, what else? Hmm. Um, again, like whatever kind of provides a dopamine hit in some ways. So before exams, it's recommended that you just get like a big drink of lemonade or whatever and just sip it because then all the sugar goes to your frontal cortex and you can concentrate more. Um, mm. there's also rewards. So ADHD brains in particular need rewards. We won't do stuff unless we know why and what's in it for us in a, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on my self-diagnosed. Gee whiz. <laughs> I'm learning a lot here, Kitty. <laughs> so there's, there's, and again, like in schools, there's a lot of talk about intrinsic and extrinsic and intrinsic and extrinsic motivation so, I talk, so I bang on that about all the time yep yep 
But for neurodivergent kids, often you need the extrinsic first. So they kind of need, and like, you need like a mini reward. It doesn't have to be physical. Like if Mm. whatever their currency is, it might be like my kids love being chased and tickled. Their currency is fun. It's exhausting. Mm. Mm. But we know that's what they love. So, you know, it'll be like, okay, let's get this done and then we can play a game. And they're like, yes, okay, let's go. Gotcha. That's it. Yep, yep. I'm like, you know, we have to do this incredibly boring task. They're like, why? Mm. And, you know, then it kind of stops and you have to push them through it. They kind of need to know that there's something good at the end. And I have to do that with myself too. Mm. So if I'm mm. like, you know, I just have to do all of this and then I can do the fun thing. All right. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. 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 I get that. Now, look, I, I, you, you told me before we started recording that you've just done something that most kids authors, any author would absolutely love to do. You've achieved the goal of chucking in your day job and becoming a full-time author. Congratulations on that. How, how hard was it to make that decision? Oh, my goodness. It was so difficult. And I loved my job. My job was amazing. But, again, kind of, and it was around the time that I was diagnosed as well that I kind of cut myself some slack because I couldn't have, you know, my job and my writing and my kids and, you know, my family and my relationship with my partner. It was too many things to kind of keep up with. And like having a house and cleaning it, it was just too many things. So something had, and what was suffering was my writing Mm. and the house, you know, whatever. So, so basically, is it is what like what you you work it out and go what fills my cup, what yeah. brings me joy, what makes me feel like I'm I'm I've got my purpose and all that sort of stuff, and you and you work it all out, uh, but then obviously you've you've sat down with your partner to go, is this okay? Can we do this? Can we make that yeah. work? And yeah. and having a supportive partner is one of the crucial things, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Like I have a lot of privilege in that he has a steady job. And, you know, we kind of always tend to go for time together and experiences over income. Yeah. So that was kind of an easy decision mm. in that room. Mm. And he was super supportive because, yeah. Wow. You know, okay. as you know, writer's income can be variable or non-existent <laughs> or, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've actually got to work 16 times harder and look for so many different opportunities out there to try and generate the income and and then you know people have this dream this idea that we just make money from sales yeah well the books the book sales are like the the lowest of like say for me i make way more money in public appearances school visits all that sort of stuff than i do with book sales completely wild to me that so often like getting paid for a school visit or something is more than my royalty check for like that mm. year. Mm. It's like, it's, yeah, I know. it's wild. I know. And that's, and that's, I, I do get, I sometimes I, I come back from doing a school, you know, being there for, you know, for five hours or four hours or whatever it is. And you've had the best time. And then suddenly you remember you actually get to send an invoice and you go, oh, I actually got paid for that. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. 
You know, it's pretty. It's, it, what we do is pretty good. It's still wild to me that I get paid to write. It's like, mm. don't they know it can be fun and, you know. It can. So, Kitty, you are a walking, talking example that it can happen and it can be done. <laughs> so, when, okay, now, when is the Follow Your Feelings series coming out? So the first two will be out on the 31st of August. They are available for pre-order on Booktopia. I believe, and I'm sure a couple of other places. Just mm. go now, they're out through a firm press, aren't they? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. Hold them up again. Here we go. Here are the who's, who's the illustrator? Jeff Rose. Ah, okay. So in the UK, oh. and um, she did such a gorgeous job on the illustrations. Like she just captured the relationship amongst the character amongst the characters so beautifully. Wow! Wow! And how was how was the um, the 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 working with with her? Did you just write um, the text, send it through to a firm, and then they dealt with with Jess? Or? There's, there's kind of there. So I worked really closely with Tash from a firm on getting the text right and mm. choosing an illustrator because we wanted. Um, there was a particular style that we were looking for. And again, that kind of the expression of the characters was crucial. And then Jess kind of took it and we knew that she got it. Mm. So there wasn't too much more that needed to be done because we were really careful. Yeah. So there was still, you know, some back and forth and talking and things like that. But she loved the manuscript straight away, which is always really good because when you have someone who, like, gets it, you're like, okay, cool, this is going to be fine. Yeah, I like that. Okay, one last question, Kitty. What okay. lights you up? Oh, um, I like learning things. That's okay. always... Yeah, yeah. I think, again, like the ADHD, I like learning new things and new experiences as long as, you know, they're not really sunny or cold. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's, look. I like comfort. We don't have to sit with too sunny or too cold. You just walk away from that. Get out of there. You just want to, you want, you <laughs> want. I like that. I like that. So, Kitty, thank you so much for chatting Thank with me. You. Good luck with the book. I believe you've also got um, Bat Who Wants a Hat. Yeah, Mr. Bat Wants a Hat. There's Mr. a Bat book Wants a hat. this Sunday, Sunday first of August. Right, okay. So because I'm, I, I'm, I might put this out on Saturday just before. Ooh. Well, I might put it out after, so it would have been a gone. But, you know, we, this, this, we, 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 we deal with parallel dimensions and timelines here on this show. So people will work it out. So if they want to find out more about you, your website, please. Uh, kittyblackauthor.com, I believe. Yes. <laughs> I'll, put it, I'll, put it, I'll put it down below here. Look, Kitty Black, thank you so much for your time and, like, I wish you the best success with everything. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. What are we going to do with all this time?